You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you Kabbalists, practitioners of tarot and everyone who thought that Immortal Hulk was just a little too straightforward. It is time for episode number 83, legacy number 83, of the Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science podcast family. I am your decidedly non-mystical host, Jason, broadcasting as always from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and joining me today from the well beyond the worlds is my pal Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Hey, good. I feel like this whole episode is going to be a setup for me, but <laughs> let's do it. Well, it's a big day for you because we're to we talk about two books today, X-Force number 47, which is a cool story, but very, very straightforward. Very Ben Percy, here's the story, in and out, we're done. And then Resurrection of Magneto number one, which is the exact opposite of that. So you are the Al Ewing expert on this podcast. So uh, a number of times I'll be saying, okay, and now, now Ruben <laughs> will explain to us what the hell that means. Yeah, this is the setup stuff. I think I enjoy Al Ewing about as much as you, and maybe I've read two more series more than you, but I'll go with it. I'm the expert. <laughs> yes, you are. That is, that's what I'm sticking to. Uh, we do have two quick news items today before we get into the books. Uh, number one, Marvel released its X-related solicits for April. You know, I usually I usually avoid the solicits. You a big solicit reader, Ruben? I never read them at all. I, I yeah, I don't even listen to like the solicit podcast that Jim does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd like to be surprised. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm only going to talk about. What books were and were not solicited? That's all I'm going to say. I do like vague rumors, by the way. I just always feel like the solicits <laughs> are a little too on the nose, right? Like, For I'm sure. happy yeah, with, yeah. like, getting a no-context picture of the future and then trying to speculate what the hell's going on, but I I don't like reading the... Page number one of something with no word balloons in there. You go, oh, what's going on there? That could be yeah. fun. Yeah. But a couple things I noticed. There are two issues of Jed McKay's Avengers title included with the X-Books for April. That's issues 12 and 13, uh, which will be crossing over with the, the fall of the House of X kind of storyline. Even has that fall of House of X trade dress on the covers. So I'm guessing, Ruben, that's two more books for you and me to cover. Uh, unless Jim wants to fight us for them, but I, I don't think he's going to fight very hard. He hasn't been a big fan of X stuff or of, of that particular run of Avengers. Yeah, I actually, and, and yeah, I'm okay. just going to be like the guy with all the wrong opinions on this cast. I, I know in Slack. <laughs> Everything I say is going to be challenged, but I, I don't mind the Avengers run that's going on right now. But I, right. I do like time travel nonsense, and I'm I'm writing you down right now as the Avengers expert as well. So fantastic! <laughs> uh, there's one notable absence from the list for April: no issue of X Force being solicited. March's X Force number fifty might be the series finale. I mean, Marvel does like its round numbers, right? Maybe we're going to wrap things up and let Ben Percy devote all his time and efforts to that saber-tooth war that's double shipping. What do you think? <laughs> I think that, that makes sense. I'm also perfectly okay with Wolverine and X-Force books kind of wrapping up. I'm a little bit done with the Ben Percy stuff. Yeah, and again, I'm going to not get into it too much this podcast. I've complained about the last two, the whole back and forth in the timeline, revisiting parts of the timeline that we already kind of know what happens afterwards, so... It, it's time to kind of wrap that up, and I'm fine. Uh, and the second thing I want to note is, once again this week, there are no data pages. Um, at this point, it's going to be a surprise if and when we ever see another one. I, I do expect we'll probably still get them in Rise of the Powers of X, just to keep those timelines straight. But probably nowhere else is what I'm guessing. Just curious. 
it's been such a big part of like the identity of these books that you'd think there'd be an announcement of something big happens to kind of say, hey, we're not doing that anymore. But it just it's just faded away, which is curious. All right, now it is time to get into the books themselves. And I'm supposed to hit this ding sound right there. We go. This is X Force number 47, possibly the anti penultimate issue of this volume of X Force. It's called Game Recognizes Game. It's written by Ben Percy, art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru FX, letters by Joe Caramagna, design by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. It's, it's kind of hard to believe that we're in the year 2024. The X office is still trying to figure out what to do with Beast. Uh, way back at the beginning of this podcast, the very first episodes, even before this podcast existed, when I would just listen to a uh, our old buddy Chris over on his X-Men podcast, he'd talk about you know, the character of Beast seems broken. And it, it's hard to take a character that's broken as badly as Beast has been and try to make him usable again. And they've been kind of struggling with that for a while. And I'm sure they'd like to get this wrapped up before handing the keys over to uh, Tom Braveward and company. And if the series is really ending at issue 50, there's only three issues left to do this. So I'm very curious to see exactly what happens. And they may have come up with a pretty interesting idea here. Ruben, are you still around? I am, yeah. Okay, we'll cool. See. I don't disagree with anything you said. I, I actually thought um, they came up with a potentially clever way to give us a beast that is a hero again. Yeah, so this issue is very straightforward, like I said. Quick read. It's really just in two parts. In part one, Beast does a thing, and then in part two, X-Force responds to that thing. And that's really where the interesting plot points come forward. So, part one, the issue opens with a, a nearly wordless action scene. I, en I enjoy those. Uh, as you'll all recall, last issue's cliffhanger was the revelation that the greenhouse, aka Krakoa, further north, was being watched through the scope of a scary-looking rifle by none other than everyone's favorite furry blue original X-Man himself, Beast. Now, Ruben, you and I had speculated that maybe Beast wasn't there to shoot anybody. Maybe he was just kind of watching over them, still trying to help in his own creepy twisted way uh is is that what happened i mean he shoots omega red but then omega red is okay later and so it seems like he was just trying to basically break in i'm still gonna right. hold that he wasn't trying to kill anyone and that's, when, that's true when he runs off i think he says something about you know good luck surviving which can be read in a couple different ways. He's, he's not there to kill them, but he's also not there to protect them. He's there to steal from them. He does shoot Omega Red right in the chest with some creepy biological, you know, beast Krakoa thing to it. Uh, at, on first reading, I thought Omega Red was dead. I did too. I was like, that's a, <laughs> a very quick way to deal with that character. But <laughs> I mean, later on, he just kind of pops up in the back. He has no lines in this issue aside from a, what does he say? He, he gets shot and he says, Urn! And that is his complete dialogue here. Uh, but he has a healing factor, so maybe just give him something to slow him down a bit so you can break in. Once again, I have to note just how little Ben Percy seems to care about Omega Red. We've, we've been laughing about this for months and months. Omega Red hasn't had a meaningful or important character moment since that little arc when he was hanging around with alcoholic sage and they were kind of bonding over their mutual addictions, like he was addicted to killing people and she was addicted to, to scotch or whatever. But he's he's the, here he's the first X-Force member to be taken down by Beast, so that gives him something. Beast then sneaks into the greenhouse, creeps past Aurora and Northstar, who turned up last issue, some continuity there. He accesses a few Krakoan computer panels, and that's when, finally, he's noticed. Sage is alerted to Beast's presence by some very concerning computerized pings, 
and when she and the rest of X-Force arrive at the central control room, Beast is there waiting for them, wearing a version of Krakoan battle armor that I don't remember I've seen that exactly before. Have we seen this thing, or is it just kind of generic Krakoan stuff? It seemed very generic. I didn't recognize it as a well-known suit. Okay. Uh, he, he looks very calm. Uh, I like to think that Beast could have been, he could have been up and gone several minutes earlier, but he kind of just stuck around so that he could have a more dramatic exit. I think that's a Beast thing to do. Uh, he does exit, zooming off like a biotech Iron Man and knocking his erstwhile teammates ass over tea kettle. That's, I mean, look at Black Tom there. He's, he's going to be sore in the morning. They're all just going flying from the, you know, just the, like the rocket exhaust. Very silly. So part two is how will the team respond? Beast is still out there somewhere. Now he's got a bit of Cohen tech that Wolverine thinks he's going to use to grow another mobile base to replace that kaiju that got destroyed a couple arcs back. Sage has an idea and a secret to share. She's been hanging on to one last unactivated beast clone, keeping it alive via Krakoan Bakta tank. The clone is, is buck-naked, and I, I do like how artist Robert Gill is really careful to always draw with bubbles covering up strategic locations. Very funny. Uh, unlike the latest Wolverine, no parental warning on this cover, so you gotta gotta keep it PG. Sage calls a full X-Force meeting. Uh, here's where we see that Omega Red survives. Not that he does anything, but he's there. Uh, Sage lays out all the bad things that Beast has done, not just in the Krakoan era, but well before. Everything from some connection to mutant growth hormone, to the legacy virus, to the Illuminati, to uh, more recently the whole genocide in Terra Verde, those human biological experiments in his space prison, all that stuff. And even after he went fully rogue, that's lowercase r rogue, not Mrs. Gambit, even after that, X-Force has been able to has not been able to really bring him in. So Sage's idea is, quote, the best way to stop Beast is Beast. Questionable. Um <laughs> I you know it's the little old lady who swallowed the fly, like, let's swallow another fly and let him fight each other. Maybe not the best logic, but okay. She did find one solitary cerebral back of Beast's mind that had not been destroyed. This is an old one from right after Beast's time on the New Defenders. There's a footnote saying that this would have been circa New Defenders number 142. Now, Ruben, do you have any idea when that would have been in like real world time? Yeah, it's really hard to say because that with the time travel stuff, I have no idea what's... I shouldn't say time travel, but with like the continuity resets, I kind of have no idea. Sure, but I'm just talking about like our, like, you and me time. Yeah, um, it was the 80s, right? Sometime January around. 1985. That is literally still in the Bronze Age. This would be rolling back like 40 years almost of Beast continuity. That's <laughs> a lot. 40 years. Yes, that is quite a lot. Uh, so the team's reaction to this idea is, is mixed. Domino and Kid Omega both call it sketchy. Uh, Colossus seems open to it. Uh, he remembers how Beast was back then, said, you know, he, he seemed happy back then. Wolverine, dead set against it, thinks having two Beasts would just be doubling their problems. He gets outvoted. Now we cut to this new Beast, this new old Beast, being brought online. They don't need the five for this. This is Beast's resurrection system operating independently. We don't know the details. It does make you wonder, could they retrofit this to, you know, have mutant resurrection going for anybody, or is this beast specific hard to say you know what i'd say it'd be kind of funny about all this so what if the whole play is going to be this clone comes back and we're like we th they think that you know it's this version of beast that they've got and then there's like a body swap and the evil the current evil beast is the one that survives but because they think they have a 
heroic version of him. He can now just kind of hang out with the team. Kind of like a, a second Dark Beast, but this one undercover? Yes. I mean, it could be. <laughs> Lots of possibilities here. Uh, so as this new old beast wakes up, the rest of X-Force takes up a defensive posture that, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old here, but it, it looks almost exactly like the old Charlie's Angels logo. I, I might be the only one who thought that, but it made me laugh, and I posted the picture on the Slack. It's just, it's Sage's pose. Sage just sideways with the gun pointed up. That's Charlie's Angels to me. It probably is, but I didn't think it when I saw it. I think it is. Uh, You're not as old as me. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, So the whole team is here now, including heavy hitters like both Wolverines, Black Tom, who controls all the Krakoan flora, Kid Omega, who is Kid Omega, and yet this dazed newborn beast in a body he's not really familiar with kind of kicks all their asses for a little while, which seems unlikely to me. But it does look cool, so I guess it's okay. Uh, eventually, Sage kind of goes all Fay Ray and calms down the disoriented beast. Was Sage Sage wasn't around in 1985, was she? No, so definitely not. He has no idea who the hell this lady is, but somehow she says, "I'm a friend," and that that kind of chills him out a little bit. Uh, what the first thing that this Hank McCoy actually says is, "Oh my stars and garters." Which, as a catchphrase, isn't really up there with classics like it's clobbering time, but it does really capture the innocence of the 1980s beast. Yeah, and he actually, he did say that a lot. So it sort of, I guess, brings you back to that beast. I always thought it was like a really stupid (laughs) catchphrase, but he did say it a lot. So yeah, this is a older version of beast. Yeah, the the art also makes him look like more wide eyed and childlike, even though he's still in he's in the same kind of body as the current beast because that's what the clone bodies are. He's still naked, but all the naughty bits hidden in shadows. We jump ahead to quote hours later. Beast is behind bars made of Krakoan flora. I wonder what the negotiation was saying, Hi, you're brand new, you think it's still nineteen eighty five, we're putting you in prison now. I'm curious what that scene would look like, but we skip that. He is wearing pants, very nice, and a nice continuity touch, also glasses. Because while the current beast had his nearsightedness fixed when he was resurrected, he made sure all the subordinate beasts would still need those glasses. We now jump ahead to, quote, hours later, where a beast is behind bars made of Krakoan flora. I would be curious to see that, that scene that gets skipped where they say, hey, hey, beast, we know you're brand new, you, you think it's still 1985, you've got no pants on. But uh, we're going to put you in jail for a little minute. <laughs> I wonder how that conversation. Uh, he's also wearing, he, he does have pants now. Very nice. Uh, nice continuity touch. He, they also, he also has glasses on. I guess Beast has like extra glasses stored around places like I do. And <laughs> this has to be there because we know that the current Beast had his nearsightedness fixed genetically when he got resurrected. But he made mm-hmm. sure all his subordinate beasts would still have to wear glasses. Uh, and now we get kind of a montage of Black Tom catching Beast up on the highlights of, but well, we only see him talk about the Krakoan era. Presumably, he also talked about some older stuff. And we don't need to see every last beat. We get enough to say, yeah, he, he's caught up to speed. Now. Uh, beast is concerned that if he doesn't pass whatever purity test these new X-Forcers have waiting for him, they may just declare him a failed exper- experiment and dispose of it, which you can see why he'd be a little concerned there. Yeah. Black Tom must have been talking for a while because he's gone and bored himself to sleep, but uh, but not before letting it slip that all X-Force members have access to the new tech. Once Tom is fully conked out, Beast just calmly, quietly says, request access, and then open cell. And naturally, the Krakoan tech responds to him. What was that, Ruben? That seemed a little, like, convenient, a little too convenient for me. One, the Black Tom just, like, falls asleep, and then two, 
that they allow beasts to still control the tech. If they're trying to finish this series up, I can see why they don't want to spend two or three pages on this. It, it works okay, but yeah, it is weird that he falls asleep. I mean, he's had a tough day, fine. Uh, I buy it that this beast would be recognized as being the same as the other beast, because he is. But also, I would have thought that Sage would have turned off access for the old beast. That's what I'm saying. At some point. If that's the guy you're worried about being out there, you just you let him have the passcode still, or at least the uh, have the system recognize him. That's, that's quite the oversight, yeah. It's a bit weak for me, but it's fine. He gets out. So now Bronze Age Beast does just what Modern Age Beast did at the start of the book. He accesses the computer terminal. This time he requests, quote, every file with Beast or Hank McCoy as the author or subject, which if you're trying to do that in like comic book world, that's that's a couple of long boxes, I gotta think. So he's he's got some reading to do. And he does not like what he sees. It, it literally brings a tear to his eye. And then on the final page, we see Beast outside the greenhouse, running away as fast as his furry blue legs will carry him. I, I do hope this works out better for him than when Lauren ran away from Cocoa North and Alpha Flight Mini, because that was, that was kind of a mess. He's Where a is he running to? I know he's smart, but like you said, that is a lot of files to get through. He's he's not a speedster, right? He's not literally connected to the speed force here. Maybe he had a, you know some sort of AI summary. Give me the high points. <laughs> you can do GPT. that now, right? <laughs> Read my emails and summarize. <laughs> it's like you're an asshole. That's the thing, that's the yeah. summary. <laughs> uh, I mean, and that's the book. Like I said, fairly straightforward comic. Some intrigue, some fighting, a nice twist. Nothing super deep. Very much a Ben Percy comic, which is different than what we expect from someone like Gillen or Hickman or, or Al Ewing, for instance, but it's pretty solid. I'm very curious to see how this Bronze Age version of Beast interacts with his modern world and his modern self. The coming attractions page at the end shows Beast paired up with Wonder Man, Simon Williams. And that is a classic pairing. Those two have been buds since they were both on the Avengers in the late 1970s, so putting them back together makes a lot of sense. Not that we get a whole lot of Wonder Man, but fun to see him again, too. Yeah, I could see him going to his old buddy to say, hey, this is what's going on. Yeah. He's, He's got to be in a weird, weird state of mind having woken up like this, to say the least. So, uh, nitpicks. Continued neglect of Omega Red. At this point, I think it would have been better if a person had just written him right out of the book like 10 issues ago, rather than having him just hanging around as, you know, wallpaper. There's a, a half dozen other characters who could have served as the like the first guy beast shoots that opening scene. Didn't need Omega Red there, but at this point, they're just going to you know bring him on to the end somehow. The he's Gil doing the Ar- same thing as like Wolverine. It's the same role, right? He's the guy you can brutally injure because he can just get back up. But this team also has Wolverine, so it's like, it's got two Wolverines, right? <laughs> like, why do we need the Omega Red on top of that? But yeah, unless you're going to make use of him being kind of a villain, kind of gruff, kind of an outsider, and make that into a plot point into the story, he doesn't really fit. Uh, the Gill art, mostly really good. He has to draw two different beasts and convey their differences to us through just body language and facial expression. Really successful, I thought. There's one panel where he makes Sage look like a goofball when she says the fight a beast with a beast, that thing. He does like that every issue he draws. He has like one picture of Sage looking like an airhead, which I don't think works, but that's also just what's worrying about getting a stiff drink, right? Or alcohol. I suppose it's better spec. than that. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, I think there's a scene where she like mentions it, where she's like, oh, I'm just thinking about, she's talking to Black Tom, right? And she's like, oh, I'm thinking about a drink, which is fine. I, she's an alcoholic, right? I'm sure that 
really happens. But it, it kind of just seemed like she was just suddenly cured when she decided to be cured, and it doesn't work like that. So it's nice to have the, a mention here without it being overbearing. That's well done. So, yeah, I enjoyed this book uh, more than with most Percy issues. It's actually given me something to think about in between issues. Like, what will Bronze Age Beast replace the broken, compromised modern beast? That could be fun. It's it's really similar to uh, the whole uh, Laura Wolverine thing, right? There's two of them running around. Something's going to happen to merge them together. Is one going to win? Are they going to both go forward in one body? How is it going to work? So, lots to think about. So I'm giving X-Force number 47, possibly the anti-penultimate issue of Ben Percy's X-Force run, a more than decent 8 out of 10, which is about the highest I've given this in rather a long time. How about you? Yeah, I liked it as well. It has a story that matters, which is what do we do with Beast, right? And Beast is a character that, you know, he's been around in the X-Men since the beginning, so it felt like he had been done pretty dirty as being just the, you know, mustache twirling bad guy that we've had for like the last 50 issues not exactly 50 right but he's been kind of a bad guy for quite a while and you know i'm okay with this this um solution like yeah it's a clone and you reset him to some earlier version it doesn't really undo everything that happened right which is what i think is the best reason for this right because even with this new one you know in theory being a hero and people could accept him as a hero he did some pretty bad stuff and you could have stories play out of that, like, yeah, you're not bad right now, but we know you can go bad, right? That's a, a, a interesting position for him to be in, right? Because he didn't do the bad things, but the person he grew into did. So was that in him and nature, nurture, all those cool ideas? It's really inherent. And I wonder, I wonder if this is something that the the Tom Bravort version of Beast is going to pick up on, or it doesn't have to be fully wrapped up in just the next couple months. Curious. Yeah. But I like it. I like the idea of, of us giving him a path to redemption and you know a future X-Men team have him on board. I guess he can hang out with Charles, right? <laughs> like, you guys turned out to be assholes crew. <laughs> yeah, they could be a little group therapy together. <laughs> we got to avoid our worst selves. <laughs> but yeah, I liked it. I was I was pleasantly surprised. The Some of the stuff like I griped about, like the access to the jail cell being very easy, but um, overall I was happy to have read the issue, so good to go on that one do you have a number to give us um yeah i'm trying to eight i thought it was good it's probably the the easy um recommendation for the week i actually like resurrection magneto more but if i was just to tell somebody to read an issue of an x-men comic this week it'd probably be this one yeah i think it's i think it's good they came out the same week because they are very very different and people who like a certain kind of x-men comic and only got resurrection magneto well, at least you've got this other book to fall back on and, and give you kind of more of what you want. So let's actually officially go on to Resurrection of Magneto, number one of four. Quote, the title is The Lightning Path. And that is a Kabbalah term right up front. So Al Ewing is not hiding where he's going. It is written by Al Ewing, art by Luciano Vecchio, colors by David Curiel, letters by Joe Sabino, designed by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. And uh, Rupin, as I told you over DMs yesterday, this book feels like it was engineered in a lab to be perfectly not for me personally. Just not my kind of book. It's got a trip to the afterlife. It's got mystic symbolism from Kabbalah and from tarot, you know, on every single page. And it has several moments of Storm being a little too OP for my taste. That, and it brings back a Leah Williams concept from Trial of Magneto that I had hoped would just never, ever be mentioned again. So that's where we're starting. And, and uh, 
you, you like this a bit more than I did, I, I think. I, you, uh, you actually did uh, a bunch of research, or if you can call reading comic books research, and <laughs> I can do that. That's what I tell my wife I'm doing. I'm doing research, dear. Uh, so you read, what, what did you read to kind of give you, give you some context for this? Yeah, so somebody had posted on X that this was a spiritual successor to Al Ewing's Defenders story and then Defenders Beyond story. And for some reason, I was in the mood just to say, like, I don't know who the Defenders are or what they're about. And I like Al Ewing, and if people are saying those books are relevant to this story, I'll read those. So it's only 10 issues. I read you know, two series of five. I read both of them. Um, I actually think if you were to try to enjoy this Resurrection Magnus story, it's not a bad idea to read those. Um, because there is a lot of um, symbolism and and even sort of pseudo continuity that comes out of those stories, and especially defend like if you're you could probably just get away with reading just the Defenders Beyond story because that even references um, Enigma and like him being a threat to. When did that book Marvel come Universe. out? That series. So Defenders was twenty twenty one, and Beyond was twenty twenty two. Okay, so and both of those like a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah, and both of those came out of the um, the Marvel 1000 issue. Ah, that right. was like foreshadowed in that whatever that was by 2000. And uh, we know that Kieran Gill and Al Ewing did work together to plant that little Enigma teaser in that issue way, way, way before it ever came up in Immortal X Men, which is is very cool. Yeah, those are both sort of world building issues too. Like interestingly enough, especially in Defenders Beyond, I think from like issue two. He starts, there's like these back pages where it's like, these all these ideas came from, and it's like a list. And so it gives you, you know, like Fantastic Four, whatever, and like, it basically spells it all out. So it's like, this is not all crazy hoodoo. The, I think that what he was attempting to do was well, to at least take- It's not all new crazy hoodoo. The point of that series was essentially to try to weave a bunch of uh, nonsense stories from the past together to create some sort of coherent framework for some of the mystical- characters and stories um including the beyonder and taya who i guess we see in this issue which is galactus's mother but like it's the high level summary what is relevant is he came up with this idea that there were a bunch of eras of existence so like you could basically go before the big bang and there was like a world before the big bang and the current timeline is effectively the right, the, the that's where galactus is from right he's from the version of the universe before the current one and so you in Ewing story, he basically has like, well, there was a world before that world, and there was a world before that world. And if you go down to the very bottom, it basically gets down to like narrative themes, right? And so every world in theory is like a additive version of the prior world of existence. So you get okay, you know, archetypical hero at the very bottom, right, versus archetypical villain. And they go below that, it's like existence versus non-existence. Very, Pretty very metaphysical stuff, yeah. non-stuff, <laughs> metaphysical <laughs> craziness. But the, the some of the stuff that is more coherent, that's interesting um, to me, is you know I think you mentioned there's a lot of like tarot sim- uh, symbolism in this resurrection Magneto stuff. So I don't know if this is like a defender's trope or at least an Al Ewing defender's trope, but he had this uh, magical tarot that Doctor Strange had, and what happens is you you pull a card, it's some tarot card and it summons a random Marvel character <laughs> and those people get conscripted into your team and you, you pull five basically. So you get a team uh-huh. of five 
That's very uh, and it's, uh, Pokemon or Magic the Gathering, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, they're not a team, quote unquote, but they have to work together towards some sort of purpose. And it gives you a way to have like a rotating cast of characters. Okay. Well, I mean, that is a Defenders thing going way back is that they're the team that's not really a team. So yeah. they, they've been so many different concepts over the years, but that's kind of the, the through line is that they, they don't have like uniforms and all hang out together in a, in a clubhouse. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so okay. I guess that's that's the explanation of how they get formed. And so in the first Defenders is Doctor Strange, and he gets this team together, and they do some stuff. One of the along the way, they pick up Taya, and she kind of that's how she gets out of the you know the six cosmos and right. joins ours. And then um, then Doctor Strange died, as we know, right? In Death of Doctor Strange, and so one of the things he had set up as like a safety net was if he dies, this Terret deck gets passed to Blue Marvel, oh. and so. That's Defenders Beyond. Blue Marvel like gets this message from the spell that Doctor Strange had set up. He gets the terror oh, deck. Okay, I had no idea over. it was tied that directly into the uh, the Doctor Strange continuity. That's kind of cool. So then he's like, and Blue Marvel doesn't want the deck, and he doesn't want to be the Defenders, but it kind of you know, it's tied to the universe. It what kind of forces you to do it. Yeah. So he then goes on his own, you know, mystical adventure where he goes up the cos the cosmos instead of down the cosmos, which was like the first one, and he kind of at the very top meets one above all and gets a glimpse of Enigma. Um, oh. Basically like um, eternity tells him that there's like some villain from outside of time and space that is going to be a big threat to eternity. And you need to go find out what it is. And when he gets up to one above all, he gets to see the Enigma symbol. Neat. So if you like those big abstract concepts, it sounds like that's those are the series for you to check out. Yeah. And the art's pretty cool. Really, really good with uh, Rodriguez's art in that. Um, but anyway, so when we see the was it uh, the base Chaldean base or something like that with Blue Marvel in it, that is Kadesh in, base. Or Kadesh base, thank you. Yeah. That is from Defenders Beyond. So he's got this okay. undersea base and one of the things in his base is this portal room where it's got portals to like basically everywhere including under sea okay i didn't even, i don't think that was made clear in this book but it's under the ocean interesting he's under the ocean and he's hanging out with taya and the portal room connects to wherever including in this case the uh waiting room from okay uh, so that whole portal machine is already established in continuity not a brand new thing that's been there and it was okay at least great. at least as of defenders beyond time it was part of his base Nice. So that's some really good background. And I think we're going to jump into this issue here. And if other stuff comes up that you want to throw in some some relevant bits from Defenders things, you jump right in. So, uh, Ruben, how exactly does this book open? How would you characterize, say, this first page here? Well, he got the memo, man. So he's doing the dream sequence, right? It is a dream sequence. (laughs) I mean, well, sequence is too strong a term. It's just one page, splash splash page, just one image. And the art is quite striking. It's Magneto. We see him from behind, heads up forward. He's in a distorted, dreamlike landscape rendered in these saturated, clashing colors. There are five Magneto helmets scattered at his feet. Three of them are the classic red-purple look, plus one in black and another in white. I'm curious if those colors are meaningful. We'll find out eventually, I guess. He's saying, Aurora, I was wrong. Now... There's a couple of possibilities what he could mean by that. And, and, and Ruben, what do you think he means when he says, I was wrong? Yeah, so my take on that was, and this is what I'm going to say, I don't actually mind this dream sequence. Usually my big gripe about dream sequences is I don't see any point to them. But this is basically, my take was, you know, Magneto, when he made that pact with um, Aurora that 
they were going to give up their data backups in the mutant resurrection queue. I think it was the point was like, I've lived a life of no regret and I'm, I don't have any reason to stay here. Right. Like I was satisfied with the life that I lived. And so I took it as him basically through the mind telling her, like actually regret the choice that I had my data backup deleted. Mm-hmm. But there's that something was, still for me to do on Earth, you know. That's certainly one big possibility. I'm sure that's what Al Ewing wants us to think, at least at the surface. But there are, I mean, there's lots of things that Magneto has done wrong over the years. Uh, things just linked to the whole Moira Krakoa thing, all his various villainous activities. So it could be more complicated than that. But the big obvious one is, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have deleted my. Uh, that that my my hard drive that I had backed up in the attic there maybe maybe that was a bad choice. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, a tarot card. Get get ready for a lot of tarot card images. Specifically, this is the Five of Cups. If you Google Five of Cups tarot, same pose, same landscape with instead of cups here we have helmets in the same exact locations with some of them being spilled. Uh, this is I think the most striking tarot card imagery in the book. Probably my favorite single page of the book. And like you said, it is a dream sequence, but it means something. It's not just filling up page space. It's got really strong art, really strong character information, and it sets the stage for what's going forward in just one page. Yeah, so it's sort of a call to action. It, yeah, it is. But I, I had to just point out, hey, here we are again. It's kind of funny. Yeah. And I uh, this whole thing I was wrestling with was like, hey, you bring back Magneto, but... He said he didn't want to come back, right? And so that's yes. kind of against his wishes. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I could see the need to bring him, right? Like I think in, in the story, Storm talks about how, you know, mutant kind is under peril and we need a leader and Charles is not equipped to be that leader right now, right? Like Magneto would be a great person to, mm-hmm. to lead. But you still have the problem of he doesn't want to come back, right? So getting a dream message where you're like subconsciously thinking, well, actually, he does want to come back. It, it helps me understand like why Storm would go against his wishes. So the next page, we see Storm wake up from her nightmare. She's in bed with Craig from NASA. Both appear to be, uh, you know, not wearing so much the way pajamas. So I guess their relationship's going all right. Are they still on Mars, we think? I'm assuming so. I think this is like, you know, post X-Men Red, they just kind of won over the battle um, and are just kind of there now. I kind of like this idea too, because I was like, who the hell is this guy? And like, why would she be with him? And I appreciate it. He gave a little bit of characterization here where he explains, you know, to him, she's just, you know, this hot girl that is on Mars and she kind of <laughs> likes not having to be like the weather goddess or the, you know, leader of the Iraqi or whatever other role she's assigned by everybody else. And the the, the kids are still there. I forget their names, the two Iraqi kids that uh, Craig kind of rescued adopted. and I yeah. guess adopted. Uh, that maybe if the kids are around, wear some pajamas. I don't know. I'm a prude, but hey, that's, that's me. Uh, and he's not part of... He's not part of all the pure heroic bullshit either, right? He's just a dude living on Mars. Yeah, she yeah. can be a, she can be kind of a normal woman at least occasionally. She's not a king of you know. <laughs> I forget what T'Challa's role is, but uh, he's not even a king anymore. But whatever, right? Like all that stuff comes with baggage, and I guess Craig has has less baggage. So Craig tries to comfort Storm, and he gets off lucky that she doesn't accidentally electrocute him because she's all freaked out and shoot lightning bolts around. Uh, the narration boxes throughout are from Storm's point of view, and this scene ends with her telling us, I have to go, Craig. It's time to die. So that's a dramatic ending to a, a strong opening scene. So next, we jump to uh, Kadesh base there with the blue marble. We don't know exactly how much time has passed. Probably not a whole lot. She seems to have made up her mind. 
Uh, she drops in to visit the Blue Marvel, Adam Brashear, at his Kaddish based. And, uh, yeah, I don't know how they know each other. I wish they, I wish that was spelled out. It probably is somewhere, right? I'm just going to assume they're part of the general superhero community. Um, but she talks about, uh, at some point she mentions that Monica Rambo was in a relationship with him. So maybe just word of mouth. <laughs> maybe the little superhero lady gossip, you know, they're in a tech, text chain somewhere. Who knows? It's interesting the characterization of him, too. He, he comes across a lot like a Mr. Terrific type character, right? Like another very intelligent. Yeah, Mr. Terrific, Reed Richards, that kind of thing. Yeah, but almost like too too neutral, right? Like he seems to be more focused on like, let's just explore and experiment with this stuff. Yeah, we get that. from Again, it's told from Storm's point of view, so it's filtered through her own biases, which who knows what putting in there. But the idea that, yeah, it's almost like that scientist too, oh, we can do it, so let's yeah, just let's do just it do without it. thinking yeah. of too much of the consequences. Uh, yeah, and uh, Ty is here, who I didn't know who she was. So when I Googled her and found out that she's Galactus's mommy, that was kind of funny. Uh, maybe she's kind of cool. Uh, the important thing here is, yeah, he's a scientist kind of guy, Mr. Terrific type guy, and he's going to help her get where she needs to go. And he goes to this machine. Is there a name for this machine with all the windows? It's just the portal room is what? The portal it, room. That's yeah, fine. Uh, and he's going to, you know, twist some dials, push some buttons. And open up a window that he says can deliver Storm directly to the, oh no, it's the waiting room. That special part of the afterlife created by the Scarlet Witch at the end of Leah Williams's Trial of Magneto miniseries. So, Brashear I like what they do. I, okay, I'm going to say this. I like what they do here because I'm, we read it, right? That was created. It was supposed to be this big deal and everybody thought this could get you every character back, right? And it even. All the limitations off of Resurrection. The few that there were were just open up the floodgates. Everybody can come back. Every mutant who ever lived can come back. But what I like here is Al Ewing gives us an explanation for why that's not the case, why it doesn't work that way. So yeah, the waiting room exists, but once they get there, they learn. It's not that everybody's stuck there. People can still leave the waiting room. And There's some people are just going to... from the waiting room. Yes. Yeah, some people are just we'll going to be like, it. nah, I don't need to come back, right? So this allows for a lot of like, this character comes back, but not that character stories right if they want to reset everything and then as we assume at the end of this era just get rid of the like resurrection stuff across the board um i think this will give you an answer for like why they can't just bring back everybody who's dead fair enough so he's a uh, brashear opens up this portal and he doesn't expect it but storm just just literally dives right through which i don't know what he thought she was going to do but that's what she does so yeah, she and it seems up- like her body stays and her spirit is what really goes through the portal. Yeah, so we then- only find that out later on in one little kind of mystical panel showing her body still back here in this portal room, which it yeah, I thought for until we get to that page, I thought her whole body went into the weight the afterlife. I guess it doesn't work like that. The lock and key thing, right? Your your spiritual body leaves and your body is collapsed. Sure. Why not? <laughs> so Storm That's a great was- series, by the way, as an aside. Everybody go read Lock and Key. I love that one. Oh, yeah. that one, I did read a couple of those volumes. That is a good book. Uh, but but here in uh, Resurrection of Magneto, the Marvel Universe, yes. Storm gets into the waiting room and she's greeted by Tarn the Uncaring, which is a fun twist. I like that. Uh, I like Tarn this was- part a lot. So at this part, I was like, I don't understand why Jason doesn't love this story. <laughs> this is great, right? Like I, all of this at this point, I'm following it. It's coherent. It, you know, it's a little weird. But I, I'm following like point A to point B. It all makes sense to me. And I, I really love the idea of like Tarn's in the waiting room. Of course he is, right? Like that came into existence before he died. So why wouldn't he, he be there, right? And 
for a second there, I was like, oh man, are they bringing him back as like a big bad? Like that'd be pretty cool because he, I thought he was a pretty good villain of the new villains they introduced this, you know, last five years. He was one of the ones that, yeah, just in that hell, anything from that Hellions book, I'm glad to remind it of. It's fun. So Tarn was killed by Magneto in a challenge. I mean, that's how Magneto joined the Great Ring. Yeah, he got uh, so just having that Magneto connection is fun. And behind Tarn are seven cryptic symbolic images. Uh, Ruben, would it shock you that we're in tarot card world again? This is the Seven of Cups. Google Seven of Cups. It looks really similar. They've added some Marvel tweaks. Uh, the symbol of the floating head that is from the card. Here is the head of the Living Tribunal. The figure of death looks a lot like Lady Death, who uh, Thanos wants to go out with. That kind of thing. Uh, Tarn, st- Tarn tells Storm that these symbols are also exits. I guess so that the dead mutants can choose to leave the waiting room and enter an afterlife of their choosing. And we're not really given exactly what each means. I'm thinking that the, the wheel with the snake through it, it makes me think of, uh, I think they call it the, the wheel of life, the wheel of dharma, the wheel of reincarnation. So that's probably the, the Hindu Buddhist end of things. But I, I really have no guesses for the others. Maybe the figure of death is like complete annihilation. Why not? <laughs> oh, and there's, there's these seven colored circles in the sky who don't come from the tarot card. Maybe something connected with the uh, infinity gems. That's just, I guess, I have no idea. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff here where I just I looked at it and I'm like, okay, it's weird stuff. Um, but it it'll is, probably matter weird. later. Yeah, and that's maybe one of the. Let me just say when I read these bizarro stories, um, I don't always need to make it make sense to me, which is total cop out. But sometimes I'm just like, that's just abstract weird art, and I just move on. Well, it, for me, it really depends on the writer. And I believe, I fully believe that Al Ryder has a meaning and a purpose that he intends for everything in this book, right? I don't, some other writers you might think just write in their script, draw some wacky crap. And, and, the, and the artist just kind of goes and draws some wacky crap. But I don't think that's how Al Ewing does things. I'm, I don't know if I'm, I, I care about his plan, but I'm sure he's got one. So next, Tarn and Storm get into a fight. And Storm very easily kicks his ass because this is Al Ewing writing Storm. Uh, so no, no actual tension here, but it sure looks cool. Uh, love the way uh, Luciano Vecchio draws a, a monstered out Tarn. And also he makes Storm's hair look amazing. I don't know. For some reason, just the way he draws her hair, just it's always in a different position and pose and it's flowing and it's got these details. Looks very cool. So Tarn is like super dead now. He's dead in the afterworld and exactly what that means, who the hell knows. Next, we have uh, Storm have a conversation with her own ancestor, Ashake, who's you know back in ancient Egypt, magical kind of lady. You are you familiar with Ashake? I am. Yeah, she she was a big character in Claremont's run over the years, and then I think he brought her back again recently in the that Gambit series that he did. Yes, that's what the footnote sends us to. It sends us to Gambit issues two and three, which is the twenty twenty two Gambit miniseries. The ju- the gist is at some point in time. Um, Nanny had captured Storm and turned her into a little girl, and she had lost access to her powers and was on the run. And that's kind of when she met Gambit for the first time. He kind of like paired up with her. And then they were gallivanting around New Orleans, stealing as like a Robin Hood and kind of duo. And eventually she gets her powers back in full through kind of mystical visions from her ancestor. Now, this conversation with Ashake is where the book really started losing me because it's a lot of dreams carry meaning, symbols and metaphors are the true reality, that kind of thing that just makes my eyes glaze over. Uh, And this is where Ashake gives Storm a vision of what's happening with her body back in Blue Marvel's bachelor pad. Uh, She's getting like a, a 
Taya's being like a human defibrillator trying to shock her back to life, which isn't going to work if her spirit's somewhere else. But yeah, I, again, I don't really know what's going on here physically, spiritually. I guess it puts a time limit on Storm's visit to the afterworlds. Doesn't seem to carry her up much. She seems very, very matter of fact, very leisurely here. Time moves differently in different worlds. I, I bet it's going to be the explanation. So Ashake tells Storm that, yeah, Magneto was here and that he exited through the tower. So more dream symbolism. She climbs the tower. She's already in the tower. The tower crumbles and she falls somewhere down into the ground where she finds herself chatting with a Dominion. Ooh, I was not expecting Dominions in this book. Specifically, she's talking to the Phalanx. So what did you think of this section? Yeah, this... I. I agree with you, the Ashake conversation stuff. I just kind of, my eyes glazed over and <laughs> uh, I went into like skim mode at that point. But then I saw the phalanx and uh, I got excited again because I, I just think those characters are cool. And to me, they seem like a huge threat and I'm always trying to understand them. It's an awesome page turn because this page looks just freaking amazing. It has the technological and mystical and incomprehensible all kind of mixed together just the way that the Dominion should look. Uh, the way it talks, it's kind of, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, Warlock and his people, which makes sense, where it kind of says the same thing three times in different words. Reading, acknowledgement, warning, forever, outside ever, beyond ever, you know, that, that kind of thing, which is fine. And uh, these are yeah. the ones that we see get hollowed out in um, Rise of the Powers of X, right? Oh, yes, I guess so. Right, right, right. And this is all before that, so it kind of makes sense that they're not at that point. Or whatever before means for a Dominion, but sure. And they also, um, this Dominion is in Defenders Beyond also. So uh -huh. um, I don't know exactly how they access where they are, but they're Dominion. I guess they can do whatever they want. <laughs> it's good to be a Dominion, right? So this Dominion is concerned about Enigma. At least it, I think it's concerned, and we know it should be because it ends up in at least one timeline, being killed by it, or hollowed out, or how we want to call it. Yeah, in the Defenders Beyond, they talk about that idea of there being multiple Dominions side by side. They're like, yeah, there's a bunch of Dominions out here. We all we all are out here in the outside of time and space realm, and our only purpose is to like grow, right? And so we do. But there's one of us, the Enigma engine, that is like threatening everything, including ah. our existence. So, all right, yeah, which was. Interesting. So this Phalanx Dominion calls Enigma by two additional names. One is Ace of Crowns. And as far as I can tell, Crowns is not a suit of the tarot, but the Ace of Swords card does show a crown perched on the tip of the sword. So presumably that's what they're talking about, you know, Crown, Enigma, all that stuff. Uh, the other name the Phalanx uses for Enigma is Fifth Business. And I have no idea what that means. Is that anything connected with Defenders? Two things. Um... So the crowns thing, too, is also this idea of like a crown sits on top of the head, right? And, sure. you know, the Enigma Dominion wants to be on top of everything. And then the the fifth business um, in Defenders Beyond, there's these allusions to like, when you see a suit of four, look for the fifth, which I think was an allusion to the idea that there's four Essexes, right? And look for the fifth one. That hangs together. Yep. Yeah. So I think fifth fifth business, I think it's just uh, like, hey, this he's, is he's the, the Essex. Yeah. So on the next page, Storm asks the Phalanx about Magneto. This page shows Storm on one side, Magneto on the others, both posed like the tarot card, the Hanged Man. Magneto head down, Storm head up. And I, I have a vague idea that when you're doing tarot card stuff, which direction the card's pointing is really important. But I don't know the yeah. details. Yeah. I'm not a tarot user fan. 
expert <laughs> interest. But yeah, at least in the the defenders books tell me that if you have the card face up, it means one thing. And if you flip it, it means another thing. I knew a girl in high school who got really into it in a way that made me pretend to be really into it for a while. It's not important, but that's like my last memory of tarot card stuff was in the, you know, early 90s, let's say. I mean, wouldn't they only get flipped upside down if you shuffled them like a animal so that the cards aren't in the same direction? I I, I don't know. There's a, a whole procedure I'm not familiar with. Yeah. It offends, um, this is a total tangent, but you guys probably know this, I'm a big Magic the Gathering fan okay. player and drives me batshit insane when like you cut a deck and like shuffle them so that the cards aren't in the same direction because then you're like drawing cards and they're like oh god that yeah, is so a I, level I of pickiness I, I'd never even considered but I, yeah. I, I get it okay. with regular playing cards it's fine right because like they're 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 made that way yeah. they're made that way they're flipped right so it doesn't matter like the way you shuffle them but you gotta shuffle <laughs> shit if it's like if there's a clear top and bottom to a card you have to shuffle in the same direction or there's something wrong with you, or at least there's something wrong with me. Okay. That's so, uh, just, uh, folks, God. you've learned something today, how to either not annoy Ruben or possibly not yes. annoy Ruben, depending yes. on what you're going for. <laughs> okay, so, meanwhile, back in the book, uh, this isn't really Magneto, right? It's like the minion projecting an image of Magneto. So they've seen him, thought he was kind of interesting for a, you know, a limited individual, not interesting enough to keep. Storm, though, she's even more interesting. So I want to pause on this, too, uh-huh. just to quickly talk about this. I thought this was an interesting concept. So basically, what they're saying to me is Magneto was in the waiting room, and Magneto moved on, right? He picked one of these endings, so he went through a door, and the Dominion then saw him. And their point is, remember, they try to add new knowledge to them to expand th- their own knowledge, right? So they effectively, kind like, of, I guess... Kind of Borg-like, but a little more abstract. Yeah, exactly. With with the idea of, like, I think they do scan people, and sometimes they decide you're just not worth it, and at that point, you're just food. For the like you're out for a walk, and you see a nickel on the ground. Is it worth picking up? Probably not. <laughs> a quarter? Well, maybe a quarter I'll stop and pick up. That's exactly the... That's perfect. Yeah, that's I like that analogy. That, okay. That works perfectly. Yeah, if it's like a... If it's a $20 bill, hell yeah, you're grabbing that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, he was the he was the penny. And I'm not sure what the value of Aurora is, but uh, I guess it kind of depends on who you are and what, what will make you stop. But. So let's, let's give the actual quote for Mag- <laughs> Magneto. Magneto, they call him. A rare atom, we looked at him, paired his self to the base strata, cataloged his pain, studied him, then sent him on. And then when they go to Storm, they say, you are of greater interest, worthy, useful, consumable. And then Storm says, consume this, which is not a good line, Al Ewing. Sorry, <laughs> not good. Uh, and then they have a fight, and Storm kind of wins against the Dominion? Yeah, this is the part I didn't like. Because I, I, I needed to understand exactly what happened. If you're going to convince me that she has any ability to do anything against the Dominion, it needs to be very clear what she did. Yeah, there is one one little narration box that says, all I can truly do is hope that my power in this place is, italics, symbolic enough to sting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, sure. I can't hurt them, but I can make myself uncomfortable to consume, I guess. I, I don't really buy it, but whatever happens, yeah. Yeah, she needs to get away from the Dominion. She had to meet the Dominion, get some info, and then... The art, again, looks really cool. There's a page where they have one, two, three, four, five, six versions of Storm all kind of fading into each other. And she lands in this landscape that we saw in that dream sequence. Identical there. Uh, same purple ground and red sky. Uh, she's in the same kind of pose as Magneto. She's 
She's got a better rear end, got to say that. But other than that, same pose. Uh, at her feet are these, I guess they're just like symbols of her headbands she's worn over the years. Yeah, the similar crowns. to the helmets that you saw with Magneto. That was like all the different Magneto helmets. Same now we thing. get all the different Storm headbands. Yeah. But she Art hasn't worn recently. But okay, that's why I don't recognize it. Yeah, Art is a really nice bookend showing the first page and now to the next to last page. And then uh, she's arrived at wherever in the afterlife she needed to be to find Magneto. Maybe we get a name for it next time. But on the final page, we see Magneto. He's in, uh, he's in that burning river in the landscape. He's crying tears of blood, not having a great time. And surrounding him are two giant walls of names, which remind me of nothing else more than like the Vietnam Memorial in, in D.C. So I presume these are the names of people Magneto killed over the years. I can only make out a few of the names. I, I don't recognize them. And the couple I Googled came up empty. Uh, they repeat, too. I see Jackson, Jackson Acevedo on there a couple times. Also, Chaim Gallego. So I'm thinking that maybe they're just some, that we don't really need to know the exact names. The idea is just he killed a bunch of people, a bunch of names on the walls. That makes sense. Well, this goes back to my theory of like, he's not satisfied in the afterlife because he doesn't think he's actually atoned for the guilt that he has in his life. Yeah, he's, he doesn't look happy. This is not, you know, a Buffy situation where they resurrected her and brought her out of heaven. He's not exactly in heaven right now. Uh, so yeah, maybe next time we'll find out what he thinks of the whole resurrection idea. Maybe what he w- meant exactly if he did send that message that he was wrong, what he meant by that. Uh, and the cover of the next issue pictures Storm Magneto fighting in front of one of those walls of names. So we're going to learn more about that wall going forward. Well, we've had a lot of... Uh, Magneto was always like mutant superiority, right? It was kind of one of his agendas. Maybe once he got to the time. afterlife, he came to the conclusion that like actually mutants or maybe he's like the new charles right like maybe he's coming around to this idea of like all life has value human or mutant and that stance that i took and all those people i killed because of that stance was ultimately the wrong thing and woe is me yeah well we'll see what he thinks next time i think uh so let's talk about the art it's it's amazing uh luciano vecchio draws maybe the best storm i've seen in a long time can't get over the hair Plus all the wacky dream and tarot stuff. Uh, David Curiel's deep, saturated, kind of not getting along with each other kind of colors really bring out the whole otherworldliness of the settings. The only scene that looks relatively normal in terms of color is the bit where Storm wakes up from her nightmare. And that is like the real world supposed to be contrasting with the other scenes. So I, I like that that look. Every other page is heightened and dramatic. One of the best looking books I've seen in a while. Like if you're into cool comic art, Maybe you do what Luke Hollywood does with his untranslated mangas, you buy it just to look at the pretty pictures. The story, we found some interesting things in it. Ruben, thank you. You helped me make some connections. Still not my kind of thing. For, for all the reasons I've talked about, I haven't even written down a number. Usually in my notes, I have a score written, and I'll tweak it up or down based on our discussion. Yeah. I got nothing written down here. Uh, if I'm going to try to grade it based on what Al Ewing's trying to do, do, right? Maybe not so much on what I want him to do, but what he's trying to do. He's successful at doing what he wants to do, I think. And the art is certainly gets full marks. So from that standpoint, I think I got to call this an 8 out of 10 anyway, even though it's not a book I'm going to want to go back to for my own personal enjoyment. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, I, uh, I try to keep that perspective. It's not always yeah. easy, but there we are. Yeah, yeah. I, it's hard for me to grade this too. Um, surprisingly, I mean, I, I did enjoy a lot of it more than, um, 
I think most people will. And certainly I wouldn't recommend this for everyone. I get a big kick out of like symbolism and connections and like a weird structure. And like, if it sort of makes sense enough, that usually works for me. So um, I'm optimistic about this and seeing how it does connect to some of the stuff I've read through the Defenders um, stories kind of elevates my score. I can appreciate this is not a book for most people. And <laughs> yeah, Jim, this could, don't read this book. He would yeah, not exactly. like this book. Yeah, Jim, Jim, stay away from it. And even for Matt, me at the Matt end of Razor, this. Matt Razor does not want to read this book. Yeah. At the end of all this, I, I could ultimately just be like, that sucked, right? If it's too weird and there's no explanation, I might not like it at the end. But having seen how each of the Defenders to Defenders Beyond to this stories kind of connect to the other stuff, it gives me hope that it will make enough sense for me by the end of it all. So I think I'll say eight as well. Um, but I, but for me, it's an eight that like, oh, I actually want to see the next issue. I do hope it doesn't get any weirder than this. Um, <laughs> even yeah, as much point. as it was, ex- even as exciting as it was to see like the Dominion. Um, I don't even know how they like where they were. Right. Like, I don't know what this whole idea of like falling from the tower means. I'm just like, it's sort of like the White Hot Room, right? It's fine oh. to see it for an issue <laughs> and just see some weird White Hot Room stuff, but it, I don't want like four issues of White Hot Room, right? It, at some point, it's got to be a little bit more connected and a little coherent. more grounded. Bring it, right? Wake up. Like, if this is almost itself like a dream, we don't want to spend a long time in this dream world. We want to kind of come out or at least have some explanation to make it a little more grounded, a little more logical, a little less just pretty symbolic pictures at least that's that's what i would like to see and i was really on board at the beginning like i'd say the first half of the series i was like oh wow this is pretty cool right it, i could make it very simple right you go you go find the guy that's got portals to everywhere you go in a portal you get to the afterlife you find out that people were able to leave the afterlife so you got to go find out where they went you fight the guy who was a big bad and who's unhappy that you're looking for magneto the guy that killed him that all makes sense to me um and I, I generally don't like comic stories where they visit the afterlife, right? We've seen it a few times. We've seen, we saw Daredevil just did it at the end of that last run. I remember Damien did it in uh, the, the Teen Titans at one point. It kind of just makes the afterlife like just another weird place where to me, it, it should be really different. Like uh, the only comic writer I think who really does it well has been Neil, Neil Gaiman, uh, you know, he, he understands how to make things kind of strange in, a, in an interesting, meaningful, philosophical way. So right I'll there, say this, I was kind of turned off. But it, again, it, it looks really cool. Yeah. I'll say this for Ewing, and maybe this makes you feel a little better. And Defenders Beyond, one thing that was interesting to me is he gets to the one above all, and then they basically realize like there's actually something above that, right? That's even more abstract, that is more like true God, true heaven, and that the one above all is just like the comic version of a God that they can reach and that they can comprehend. And so I thought I was, I was like, oh, that's like a pretty cool idea. It's like, yes, your comic characters couldn't actually get to like what, you know, religious person views as heaven, but there could be like a, you know, comic book heaven <laughs> that they could reach. And it could be more like comic book heaven. Yeah. For sure. Tangential. And that's where so, fictional characters can go. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So, that uh, will wrap up our little philosophical jibber-jabber there. Uh, let's look <laughs> ahead to next week. Next week, we have two more books. We have Wolverine number 42. It, it feels pretty quick, but this book is double shipping, so we're going to get these issues coming fast and furious. This will be part two of the Sabretooth War. Uh, wonder if the next issue is going to look more like, oh, who, who's the writer who writes the Sabretooth and the Exiles? His name just fell out of my head. Is that the Sea Fox? 
No, it's not Sioux Falls. No, no, it's. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, but you know that he, he had more of a, a social kind of agenda. He had different ties back to yes. symbolic things, and I'm curious if the next issue of the Sabretooth War is going to be more in his wheelhouse and Kirk less. Lavelle. Yeah, Lavelle. That's that's right. So more less Ben Percy. I'm kind of curious if they're kind of going back and forth issue wise, or if it's going to look as Ben Percy as the last issue did. So that'll be fun. And also, we have Dead X Men number one coming out, which I had forgotten was even a book. I just it fell out of my head. Speaking of I things falling out of my head, I did not realize that was coming out. Now I thought that was like a post <laughs> post event. No, it's part story. of all of the House of X, and this is written by Steve Wild. Fox, who wrote Dark X Men. Is currently writing the Spider Woman series that's tying into Gang War, so mm-hmm. he's got that. So I am I'm curious what this is going to be because. We've had lots of questions as to how Resurrection is going to be a thing, and it's called Dead X-Men. I haven't read any of the solicits, so maybe it'll be fun. Uh, I so, just so pre-ordered Ruben, it. Good for you. you can, uh, yeah, we can, we're definitely going to talk about that next week. And, and Ruben, I'm guessing I already know what you might recommend our loyal listeners read this week. Yeah, that's actually. Gonna be your, your, those Defenders series, right? Where, where do you suggest they start? Um, I think you'd start with Defenders number one. I don't know if the Marvel 1000 is necessary reading. But okay. I thought it was coherent enough. Um, if you're interested in sort of metaphysical ideas. Very good. And uh, speaking of broad metaphysical ideas, Ruben, what should everyone do before our next show? <laughs> yeah, I got to read more X-Men books. 